Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 245 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed, and producer Jeremy is down and out. Uh, with the, the, the allergies have attacked him. They're taking over his system like cordyceps. Um, he is currently uh, being, being, you know, locked into his uh into his couch right now um like vines coming out of his face and his eyes and his nostrils and they're just locking him into the couch <laughs> um the, the last of us style uh and that that's that's what we call springtime in the pacific northwest <laughs> uh so Jer- jeremy uh is is unable to join us um but he's here in spirit and afterwards uh, uh editing this so we will soldier on, though, uh, and for our episode today, as is often the case, uh, we we think we don't have enough for an episode, so we we overstuff our notes, we plan, uh, and then you know then we record an episode and we only get to a, a third, maybe half <laughs> of what we had planned. And it's always good shit. It's always good shit that we leave in the notes, not even leave on the cutting room floor, and we don't even talk about it. Um, and this is one of those cases where this is in this is a kind of spiritual follow up from our our last episode, the premium episode, where we went over. Um, the god awful uh, and 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 absolutely a uh, a concussion of a column uh, in the New York Times by uh, Yuval Harari, Tristan Harris, and Azaraskin talking about um, artificial intelligence uh, as a form of neuro linguistic programming that is a hacking civilization, <laughs> and so we we gave ourselves. Uh, head injury by talking about that for an entire episode. And we had planned to do a little compare and contrast, a little, um, a little pain with a, a little pleasure with the pain, but we didn't get to the pleasure, uh, because we spent so much time wallowing in the pain of the New York times op-ed. So this, 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 uh, episode, this, this one's all, all pleasure, baby. Uh, it's all, it's all good stuff. Um, because we have a, a side-by-side pairing with our favorite tech columnist, Brian Merchant at the LA Times, had a fantastic column come out last week uh, called Silicon Valley Elites Are Afraid, History Says They Should Be. This is the one he teased when Brian was on our episode talking about Silicon Valley Bank's demise, um, where he, uh, it's, it's based in large part on interview with Malcolm Harris, also a friend of the show, uh, and especially the parts of Malcolm's book, which Malcolm also talked about, but only very briefly at the end of our interview with him. So I'm happy that we get to spend a whole episode talking about this kind of moment in time um, when, you know, there are militant leftist groups who are actively targeting the computer systems and the uh, tech CEOs uh, with not just uh, dunks, not just memes, not just posts making fun of them um, for uh, doing things like making your Twitter blue and your legacy verification um, all the same. Who knows? Who knows? This 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 blue check could mean you know one one or the other, right? 
But no, uh, rather than rather than making fun of them online, people actually uh, would firebomb their houses, <laughs> uh, blow up their computers, um, and and go around uh, and chase them around town, chase them out of town, even. Um, and and boy, do our tech exi- our tech elites not know how good they have it. And this this column is a history uh, of not that long ago when um, the tech lash meant something uh, far more different than what it does today. Uh, and so we are going to just go through, I think, Brian's column. It is so good. Uh, it touches on so many things of interest to us as, you know, uh, committed Luddites on TMK. Touches on so many things that we have had both Brian and Malcolm tease on our show. Um, and so, and it also is just a perfect spiritual pairing uh and you know a, a palate cleanser from our our premium episode with the new york times op-ed right <laughs> oh night and day night and fucking day that's yeah that's right this is a real day man versus night man situation <laughs> <laughs> But before we get to that, I don't know, Ed, is there any has has is there anything happening um that is on the top of your mind perhaps before we get to our the meat of our, our show? Anything that's keeping you busy, anything that's capturing your attention uh in the world that we live in? I mean, funnily enough, it's a, it's another thing that Brian wrote about right after the interview with Malcolm Harris, which is AI hype, AI paranoia. AI despair, talking about sort of the marketing copy that a lot of these startups, specifically OpenAI, are using to uh, gen up appetite for and the importance of their goods and services and also their involvement in uh, designing regulations about them and uh, in de- in deciding how they're rolled out and their deployment. Uh, Brian wrote this really great column that was kind of talking about um, the letter that you had Elon Musk, Wozniak, uh, hundreds of AI researchers sign er, insisting that we must pause AI development. Um, and, you know, in the letter, they're arguing that, you know, really what they're concerned about are these, are, quote, giant AI experiments, right? They're saying we need independent regulators. We need to ensure that it's going to be safe. We need to prevent an out-of-control arms race. Uh, we need to ensure that we don't create systems that uh, creators can't understand or predict or reliably control. And so we have to pause all AI labs uh, for at least six months uh, and make sure they don't make anything more powerful than GPT-4. And that uh, the pause, when committed to, needs to be done in a way that the public can see, so it's transparent, that it's verifiable, that it involves governments, private firms, uh, independent orgs, whatever it is, whatever can be done. And, you know, also, I think it's funny to note, um, our boy, the one and only, the co-author of the New York Times op-ed, Yuval Noah Harari, was among one of the many signers for this, right? Now, the, the letter in of itself is probably not going to end up doing much, right? But it does feed into this kind of fear. And as, as um, Brian calls it, the cottage industry of AI hustlers, uh, 
who have been taking to the internet to insist that AI is going to consume human culture because it can pass bar exams, because it can write essays, because it can write passable scripts, because it can be used to help generate deep fakes. Um, and, 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 you know, adding on to this is all the weird kind of spawn con, uh, like, like weak tea gonzo shit where we have people like publishing columns. So they just play with the tools. You know, you had, you had, um, Roos playing with, um, being in a series of conversations where it was like, you should leave your wife for me or something like that. <laughs> he's, um, he's getting honey potted by yeah. uh, fucking, it wasn't even open. It wasn't even chat GPT. It was yeah, fucking it was, it was beings. beings. <laughs> um, uh, you ha- and, and, and then you have all these reports warning and reporting warning that hundreds of millions of jobs could be made obsolete. Um, and so, Brian is asking and saying, okay, look, like we have all this yelling and screaming, right? But what's actually going on here, right? Part of it uh, requires that we have to look at the logic of this statement, of um, of the noise that's going on. And so Brian hones in on Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI, who who said that he was, quote, a little bit scared, and a quote, of, of the tech that he's building, um, and spreading as much as possible, and he was and he said it in um, his chief scientist said in a conversation last week. Quote: At some point, it will be quite easy if one wanted to cause a great deal of harm with any of these models that they're allowing you to buy for twenty dollars a month, right? Uh, so you know, Altman has talked about the ability to Altman and OpenAI have talked about the ability of these things to harm, uh, disrupt jobs. Upend capitalism in one interview, he said, um, and you can get them for $20 a week. So why, Brian asked, why would high-profile executives, chief executives, go to the public and say their product is and that they're building and selling is going to destroy human civilization? And, you know, Brian writes that it's, it's basically just um, a marketing strategy, right? It's that that goal here. It's it's not like regular businesses, right? Where you want to convince people they need to buy it because they're going to miss out. Here, you're you're scaring them because on the flip side of the scaring them is the promise of this awesome power, right? And so he writes, OpenAI has worked for years to carefully cultivate an image of itself as a team of hype-proofed humanitarian scientists. Pursuing AI for the good of all, which meant that when its moment arrived, the public would be well-primed to receive its apocalyptic AI proclamations credulously as scary but impossible to ignore truths about the state of technology. OpenAI was founded as a research nonprofit in 2015 with a large grant from Musk, a noted AI doomer, with the aim of democratizing AI. The company has long cultivated an air of dignified restraint in its AI endeavors. Its stated aim was to research and develop the technology in a way that was responsible and transparent. The blog post announcing OpenAI announced that, quote, our goal is to advance digital intelligence in the way that is most likely to benefit humanity as a whole, unconstrained by a need to generate financial return. And so, for years... This company has leveraged that to present itself as a research institution, to get more respect from the wider society, and to avoid scrutiny when the rest of the industry is getting it, right? And at the same time, by developing tools that generate more and more impressive um, headlines and spectacles, right? But at the same time insisting, whoa, we got to be careful with this stuff. I mean, we're, do- we're good. 
we're making good AI. It's kind of like I just watched Moonfall, and in Moonfall, the poor premise of the movie is that the moon is falling to the earth because it's an artificial habitat made by humanity's ancestors millions of years ago who lived on uh, in utopias. Um, but uh, they they had a self controlling AI system that managed their civilization, and it turned on them. So the AI went bad, and it killed all of humanity. And then the moon was an ark that held DNA that was then used to uh, colonize earth with um with um with life and that the moon had good ai and so the only way to fight bad ai was good ai (laughs) 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 i'm doing i'm making it sound better than it is i'm still making it sound horrible but it was very (laughs) (laughs) you're making it sound awful so if that's better than it is (laughs) (laughs) and so you know here it's like you know the only thing that stops a bad artificial intelligence is a good artificial intelligence which we will make um, because we're the good guys, right? And, you know, Brian goes on to point out, look, like this is a company that transitioned from research institution in this nonprofit framework to a capped for-profit company, but insisting that, quote, its primary fiduciary duty is to humanity. Yeah, okay. So then and you know what its- that cap is? That cap yeah. is, uh, you reach the cap at 100 times your return on investment. <laughs> so what Microsoft has invested. So Microsoft has invested. Yeah, right. Like, uh, oh, so like uh, uh, essentially 99% of all companies by that measure are capped profit because you're never going to get a hundred times your investment. <laughs> you're never going to hundred X. So it's so it's bullshit. What, what that means is that like, with Microsoft investing what, like a total of eleven billion dollars into OpenAI, their capped profits are, are at <laughs> fucking like uh, what is it, a hundred and eleven billion dollars or something? <laughs> like, damn. Okay, so once Microsoft reaches that hundred and eleven billion dollar mark, then they are like, all right, we've had enough profit. Uh, we've had all of our, all right, we've reached our cap. Like, bro, it's come so on. fucking silly. So fucking silly. <laughs> Again, it's marketing, right? It's it's pure marketing, right? And it's and also wor- open AI was like like there were all these uh uh like there were news reports from like 2017, 2018 about how like you know, of course, like Silicon Valley salaries are out of proportion from anywhere else uh, in, generally. But there were, I remember there's a New York Times story in like 2018 about like the insane salaries that open AI scientists were pulling down. So this is also like, this is classic nonprofit shit, right? Like this was back when they were still a nonprofit, but classic nonprofit shit is you never generate profit because you just feed everything into operational cost in the form of like salaries and overhead and then and then look by according to our, our accounting there's no profits uh and so you can pay your scientists like quarter million dollar salaries and still be a nonprofit, right so it's like all of this shit is uh accounting magic anyways it is accounting magic that will help them get um you know do do rhetorical sleight of hand and still maintain the marketing strategy of we are building good AI, but AI is very dangerous. So we need to keep building AI and maybe we need to do it in ways that diverge from our original mission because we have a responsibility to humanity, not to a certain profit model, not to a certain economic model, but to humanity. And sometimes that means we need to be profitable. And sometimes that means we have to be a nonprofit for four years to garner respect and, you know, 
trick everyone into believing we don't care about the money. So they've been able to, you know, so they spent, you know, 2015 to 2019 generating goodwill, um, insisting that they're going to change the arc of AI research. Then in 2019 became for profit with capped, as we said, in a bullshit accounting metric, which basically, is, so they're just a regular company now, regular startup. And now they've taken their product private, saying that it's too dangerous to be uh, in the wrong hand, even though the wrong hand is um, very short. Like, you know, yeah, wrong hands is theirs. And not only that, it's like, well, if you want to, you can pay twenty dollars to get access to the tool anyway. <laughs> so you just can't listen, know how it works. You can't know the wrong you need hands or empty hands. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, that's what they are. If you got twenty dollars in your pocket, your yeah. hands are suddenly the right hands. <laughs> I'll give you a nuke. <laughs> Why not? Um, and 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 so this leads us to the state of affairs that we're at today. Now, right? So recently, OpenAI has been doing research, and they did a research with researchers from UPenn saying, "Look, most jobs." are in one way or another exposed to large language models like those that are being developed by ChatGPT and that are also going to be developed at competitors at Google and Bing and so on and so forth. So these jobs are going to be at risk of auto- being automated away. But also there's the problem that the higher you're getting paid, the more likely you have tasks that are exposed to ChatGPT. And so at least... You know, the estimate is like 19% of jobs are going to see at least half of the task compromised by LLMs, right? People covered it, um, even though there was pushback. Dan Green, friend of the show, um, you know, talked about how this is this is more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And Brian quotes him as saying, you use the new tool to tell its own fortune. The point is not to be correct, but to mark a boundary for public debate, right? And that's very much the way we should understand what OpenAI is doing. The marketing strategy is an attempt to shape the bounds of what people anticipate AI is going to be, what it can be, how it will be deployed, labor-saving technologies or labor-augmenting technologies largely um, to obfuscate the sheer, um, you know, like if you step back and actually look at the capabilities of the model, you see that there's no way in hell it's an AGI because there's so many things that fall short of that humans do pretty easily and that non-humans do pretty easily non the the, the sentient the sentient and the intelligent non-human beings that we share this planet with whether it's primates whether it's whales whether it's dolphins whether it's crows whether it's parrots or ravens things that these organisms can do as far as we can tell that chat gpt can't but because it can manipulate language um we ignore all of this, right? And say, well, you know, language, I mean, that's the distinguishing human feature. And so, and, and so basically, OpenAI has been able to deftly take advantage of the tendency of people to anthropomorphize something that uses language, right? And ascribe to it all these interior mental faculties that don't exist because there are, is no interiority to this large language model. It's just doing statistical inference about what's going more or less, most likely to come next, right? As we've talked about. Exactly. It's a, it's an auto, a hypercharged autocorrect, um, which I don't know. Autocorrect been getting worse lately. I, I <laughs> but, but anyways, I, I got some pair, I got some conspiracies around that too. That like, I do feel like I'm not the only one to say it. A lot of people have been saying a lot. That's very, that's a very Trumpian thing of me to say. A lot of people have been <laughs> saying it, Ed. Ed, I'm not the only, Ed, a lot of people have been saying that Google search is getting worse. It's getting worse, folks. I'm not, I'm not, look, 
I got a lot. I got a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley, and they're telling me Google search is getting worse. <laughs> it's getting worse. I'm not saying it. These people are saying it. But for real, it is getting worse, and autocorrect feels like it's getting worse. And my, cons- you know, if I want to put on my tinfoil hat, my conspiracy here is that they're winding down these products, like intentionally making them worse, um, so as to direct us towards. Uh, like they're like these um, LLM products, right? Of like, well, auto like texting with autocorrect is like so bad now that you might as well just let, you know, your the you know Apple's integration with Chat GPT or whatever like compose your text messages for you, and then you can edit those text messages instead of having to write them. Um, and I feel like Google Search is like doing the same because they got barred or whatever, right? But that that's that's my I, I, there's no evidence for that. That is my my out there. If I'm putting on my like paranoid uh, hat, that that's what it is. But anyways, back to the. Brian's column before we get to Brian's other column. But I think you're, you're right. Like, like you're right to, to, uh, like we should discuss this. And, but also I think the really important thing here as well is the, to me, what jumped out in this, this, uh, you know, paper between, uh, open AI and UPIN around, um, you know, the, the job risk of, uh, of, of LLMs like chat GPT, the word that jumped out to me that they use is exposure because for two things, one, it's such a fucking vague word. What does it mean to have an oc- that most occupations now exhibit some degree of exposure to large language models? What that means is that most occupations use words and language <laughs> in the doings of the occupation. Uh, like it's such a vague, um, uh, measure. It's, it, I mean, it's not even a measure. It really goes, I think, to the like anti-scientific, um, and, uh, and scientistic kind of way that like all these people all these so-called scientists and engineers are talking about this uh about these systems right like i talked about this in my interview with ababa burhani um that like you know there there's like a real lack of science um in the way that uh that uh, these scientists and engineers at OpenAI and Microsoft Research and the academics that they collaborate with, um, there's a real lack of science in the way that they talk about these models, right? Like, like they essentially are releasing um, forms of, of like of spec of speculative fiction, of fan fiction, of science fiction, uh, and calling it science, right? Like it's based in nothing, especially when they start talking about. Uh, artificial sparks of artificial general intelligence, which no, there's fucking not, right? I mean, like you know, or when they start talking about the uh, degree of exposure that ocu- that occupations face to large language models, that's yeah, like what are you talking about? You are just projecting forward using like really uh, spurious measures and really spurious claims and, and, and using intentionally vague words like exposure, right? Like, fuck off. But also one of the things that it made me think of, exposure is also a weirdly specific word to use too because it rings of, uh, of, of finance and investment and risk, right? You have exposure to an asset, um, you have exposure to, uh, you know, to, to some crisis or you have exposure to some growth, right? Like, like, I think it, I, I, 
don't know how unintentional or uh, it, or implicit it is or not, but it does kind of speak as well to this kind of, this like universalizing of a like uh, of a of a financialized logic of a of a risk logic, right? Where it's like everything you know, the risk of AI um, is in the exposure in your exposure to the AI, uh, and then the and thus the the way uh, to secure yourself is to hedge against the AI, right? Like, That's like right. it speaks to this like ubiquitous universalization of like financial logics in the way we talk about the like the governance and consequences of these technologies. Um, which again, like who 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 does that way of framing uh like who does it benefit, right? It ain't us, right? Like who and what a weird coincidence that this like, you know, Life Institute letter uh, would come out and would be like, we need a moratorium on all AI, on the development of all AIs that, you know, that would come out immediately after uh, OpenAI releases its model. And it's like, yeah, I mean, anybody would love to to put a pause on the market after they've released their blockbuster product, right? Yeah. To like prevent competitors, <laughs> yeah. yes. you know, yes. it's like, Hey, yes. we need to put a pause on creating in, in on creating AI systems more powerful than the one we just created. Right. Like, you know, like, of course, like, uh, come on now, you know, that, like it, it, uh, it really speaks to as well. Like, you know, to some listeners, you might be surprised. Like, why would we be against a moratorium on AI? Obviously, we're not, right? But you really have to look at, like, who's doing it and why and how it's being co-opted. They're not, they don't really want uh, a pause on AI, right? They're like these people, right? Like, they want a pause on the market because they, you know, they don't, they want a pause on competition. They want a pause on anything that might surpass them or overtake them. Or, or you've got people, and I think this is the, you, you do have people who are genuine critics of AI who are, you know, signing on to that. And we can be critical of their critiques, right? Like, I think some of them, like Yuval Harari, have really uh, fucking bogus critiques, right? That, that, you know, don't really even amount to criticism um, in, in any serious way. And so we can dismiss that, right? Like, okay, yeah, you conceive of yourself as a critic, but really you're just a useful idiot for uh, and court jester for these other people, right? And so, like, but then you think you've got people like, uh, uh, Gary Marcus, right? Who also signed on to, and I think he's got a lot of like really legitimate critiques. Um, and and I've you know I have found his uh, his writing on his Substack about all this like quite useful. Um, you know, in terms of looking at the technical details very critically. Um, but he's also signed on to it and 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 uh, defended it as well. And I think that uh, this speaks to the response to the Life Institute letter that I've seen from like people like Ababa Barhani, you know, now friend of the show, people like um, Tamit Jabru, right? Like I, like their response I think is very right. Uh, you know, and this is the response of, of dare, right? The, um, the, uh, uh, the Institute that um, Tamit and Alex Hanna and others founded um, after leaving Google to do like real critical um, AI research. But uh 
you know, their response was essentially that like, uh, you know, the, the correct response in terms of looking at the, the focus on these like long-term existential risk, it's all fucking like red herring, right? You know, uh, it's, it's both, it, it, it distracts our attention from like real legit things that not only are going to happen, but have been happening and have long been happening, right? With systems that are far less powerful than GPT-4, right? Um, and so why is it that suddenly people only care about it now or only are calling on moratoriums now? It's because they don't really care about uh, the already happening and imminent consequences, very serious material impacts on people's lives, ongoing, continuous, ubiquitous, pervasive. They don't care about that. They care about their speculative fiction. They care about their science fiction. They care about what if this impacts me? Well, then that would be the worst thing in the world if this in some, in, in, in some far flung, low probability, but imaginable in my brain genius of a head. Um, and if in that way, it were to potentially impact me, well, we can't allow that to happen. We, we have to, we must put a moratorium on, you know, in other, it's, it's completely selfish, right? It's completely selfish and their self-interest are so, uh, so, so removed from the actual real world already existing uh, material impacts of these technologies that they can only be self-interested by imagining uh, you know, some far-flung future by putting a flashlight under their chin and telling spec fiction stories to each other and, and, and scaring each other, uh, into being like, well, we need, well, somebody needs to do something about this, right? Uh, like, I think that that's a very legit critique of this style of moratorium and the, and the intentions and motivations, uh, and, and people behind the moratorium, which is why I think that, you know, it, it goes down to things we've talked about before, um, is that like all of, like we need heuristics, um, for sure. Right. Like as Luddites were like, yeah, like ban technologies, abolish them, you know, pause them, whatever, you know, we need to do stuff like that as leftists. We are like, yes, you know, all right to workers, you know, equality, social equality, um, empowerment, unions, things like that. You know, we need these heuristics where we're like, generally, these are things that we take as signifiers of our movement and of our um, political ideologies and so on, because they are generally good. But that doesn't mean they're universally always things that we should support um, or that are universally always doing good things in the world. It really does, at the end of the day, the devil's in the details of like, how is it being wielded and who's wielding it, right? Like, you know, I'm just thinking about the episodes that we've had before we were, we were talking about um, with like Jack Paulson's uh, kind of, you know, uh, interactions and critiques of the communication workers union, right? And we're like, yeah, I mean, this is a case where the union is not doing good stuff, right? And like, you know, uh, and, and I think the same thing, generally here with like this kind of moratorium where it's like, yes, as Luddites, like we should, you know, be like throwing our weight behind some moratorium. Um, but then when you look at the details and the people behind it and why they're pushing it, well, 
no, I, I like I I, th- I don't think this is the I don't think that's the 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 right move, and it really does um, plug into all of the things that Brian's talking about in this column um, uh, uh, that like this is all part of OpenAI's put a pause on the competition, stall the market, the state stall the state of the art at the exact moment when we've released our blockbuster product. Um, give us all of the adulations and praise for being like responsible stewards of this, you know, um, you know, weapon of mass destruction. It's, it's all part of that, like, uh, o- you know, open AI's extremely successful, um, uh, marketing hype. Like I saw, you know, I, I watched the 20 minute interview with on a, the ABC exclusive interview with Sam Altman and also with open AI's, um, chief technologist, uh, or chief scientist, uh, Ilya Sutsker, um, Siskesfer, sorry, I'm saying that wrong, but at any rate, uh, you know, I watched that interview with them um, and, and this was like, definitely, you know, this was like the headline moment, right. Where Sam Altman's like, you know, the, the, the interviewer, Rebecca Jarvis is like, are you afraid of these technologies? And he's like, yes, I'm, I am afraid. And, and, and I would say that, uh, if people building these technologies tell you that they're not afraid, well, then you should be afraid of them not being afraid. So, uh, yes, I am afraid, you know, <laughs> a little bit. And then he qualified it a little bit. I'm a little bit scared. Just, just a little bit. I ain't shook. I ain't a shook one. Well, just nope. a little scared. Uh, and, and I think that's, that actually is a marker of my responsibility. Um, right. that I am a little, a little shook. I mean, scared, uh, by this. <laughs> you know? Part of my fiduciary duty to humanity to be, um, to piss my pants a little bit. <laughs> and it's like, these are like highly calculated statements, right? Like there's a re like that became that it was the headline of the, uh, interview, right? Like Sam Altman, CEO of open AI. Yes. I'm a little, I'm a little afraid, uh, you know, like, but it's all such fucking bullshit, right? What he means is I'm a little afraid that someone besides us will monopolize and capitalize on this technology. That's what I'm a little afraid of. I'm a little afraid as, you know, Bubba Barhani uh, in our interview also talked about how like in a, in a closed meeting she was part of um, with Sam Altman, he was talking about how he wants uh, GPT-4 and and these technologies to be, um, common goods for the world, right. but importantly, common goods that are privately owned, not common goods that are publicly owned or publicly governed or controlled. Um, so he wants to be the private prov- private provider of common goods, um, which means I want to be the global monopoly for a technology that I think uh, will change every aspect of human civilization. Uh, and if other people do it besides us, it will also end human civilization. So, you know, like it, it's all, it's all extremely calculated um, marketing and extremely calculated as part of the, the, the hype machine around open AI. And of course it's like such an overcharged type machine that it's just spilled over into creating an entire 
um, market uh, of you know VCs dropping hundred million dollar investments into companies with with no products, only pitches, right? Like yet again, uh, you know, back to the old me. It's like Web three is hardly over, uh, and I, and 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 Lord forgive me, I'm I'm going back to the old me. <laughs> and the old me is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> You know, it's a good place to end this on where it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you step back, you look at the, look at everything that's going on. These people are, as Brian is saying, trying to make us scared of artificial intelligence for reasons that are consequences of their desire to pursue larger and larger corporate clients to build out enterprise infrastructure, to build out business to business infrastructure, right? Analogous to what other tech companies do to their cloud computing services, to fossil fuel companies, right? Or to military defense contractors or military contractors, not defense contractors. You know, they're building out technology to sell to other corporations because that's where the money is. It's not really going to come for people using you know, building out premium stuff, right? And to build out that business, you need to convince everybody that there's a big giant moon that's about to crash on the planet and you need to get aboard on the good AI program train if you want to save humanity, right? Um, and if you don't, then get fucked and miss it out. And if you don't and, and get fucked and miss out, then, oh, by the way, maybe we might, you know, fuck around and stop the development of anything more advanced than our thing, which already has the biggest partnership go at the moment going on behind it, right? Um, and, and speaking of that partnership, it's also so fucking good that last week Microsoft announced they were cutting their entire ethics and society team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't have any faith that Love these that. internal AI ethics or tech ethics teams at these companies are doing anything anyways. Um, uh, uh, but, but like... But it is just a real, I think, signifier of the like mask off pivot, right? Where Microsoft's like, we're going to um, lay off thousands and thousands of workers and pivot to a like investing billions and billions of dollars into AI instead. And also, as part of those layoffs, uh, layoffs, we're going to uh, fire all of the people who might stand in the way, um, uh, even even just like. Uh, symbolically uh, to our pivot to uh, to AI, it's so fucking good. The tech, the response, the the marketing response to the tech lash lasted um, like five years, six years, if we're being generous. And then they were <laughs> right. just like, "Whew, glad we dodged that bullet." <laughs> <laughs> Whoop! <laughs> glad I'm glad we did, or did we? I think that's a good segue then to a bullet that they um, that they should be uh, hopefully in the future having to dodge uh, is um, a, a little blast from the past, quite quite literally here. Let's jump over to uh, Brian Merchant's other column in the LA Times. <laughs> man, Brian getting that job at the LA Times has been one of the Amazing. best things to ever happen at TMK. Amazing, <laughs> just. Getting to write brilliant shit all the time, day in and day out.
Mm. I will and, love it. And then us uh, give like the <laughs> like like the commentary on it. The yeah, fucking director's great. commentary. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, right? that's... Not even because that that that's given us too much credit in the production of these essays, which is uh, no 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 credit. Yeah, uh, at that is all. true. It's more like a um, TMK meets uh, MST uh, Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Um, oh. Right, we're doing like an MST3K of Brian Merchant's columns. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe one day we'll, uh, maybe we'll have Brian on to review his columns, and we'll be like, which one of the columns that we did an episode of do you think is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, all right, well, yeah, let's jump over then to uh, to Brian's other column. Um, which is, yeah, it's titled, as I said at the top of the show, Silicon Valley elites are afraid. History says they should be. Um, and the, it, it's, just, it's just so good, right? That like, look, also for Brian to have two back-to-back columns with the word, with, with t- uh, the word afraid in the title and them being about how like, uh, you know, AI, AI executives say they're afraid and then go back another column. Here's why mm-hmm. they should be afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're fearful of the wrong thing, you know? That's right. They're thinking hey, about Sam, the AI when they need to be thinking about the human intelligence. That's what they need, about the signal mm-hmm. intelligence. If Sam Altman wants to be afraid, I'll give him something to be afraid of. <laughs> History. That's what I mean. Nothing actionable. <laughs> As they say at the Antifada, history is a weapon, and history contains many weapons. That's uh, right. <laughs> so this this uh this column is also uh, very much God, like it's it's you know it's a direct follow on from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which is now uh, which has found a buyer. Um, by the way, uh, so you know, oh, thank God, all those. Uh, all those assets and liabilities at uh, SVB will find will be taken over by another small regional bank. Um, but it's it just that that feels like so long ago, to be honest. Like uh-huh. it, you know, But this column's a direct follow-on from the SVB collapse, and a direct follow-on from. Um, the absolute hysteria that you caused. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's uh, overstating to, ca- to say that you were a one-man catalyst for m- uh, fucking like multiple psychotic breaks. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I also so I thought I followed all the commentary around it. I didn't realize there's also a New York Times op-ed that was directly responding to my article. No. <laughs> yeah, by I far. I missed it too. Um, Katie Wells sent it to me, uh, which is funny because he's like, I've talked about here on Twitter and on Twitter how he's um, probably one of the only tech writers um, who was previously a gig economy cheerleader. He's the only tech, as far as I can remember, he's the only tech writer who was a gig economy cheerleader that said, oop, I made a mistake. I helped legitimize this illegitimate thing and it hurt people and i'm going to try to right that wrong and for that he will always have my respect even if i I think even if i disagree with him as i do with this column and will write an essay in response to it um but uh yeah he was talking about how like look we do need silicon valley for some things and angueso is right but they're missing the they're they're over vilifying 
these people, and I don't want to defend them. I have the it's the world's smallest, tini- tiniest violin. These people don't really deserve our sympathy, but not all VCs are like them. Oh no, he did not do a hashtag. Not all he, VCs. He did. He, did. he actually linked to. Uh, it was it was a very funny tongue and cheek thing where he linked to an article that was doing a brief history of the not all argument. Oh no. <laughs> Well, he's making a little fun of himself for that. I appreciated it. But it was a good piece. It was a measured piece, and I'll respond to it nicely. I feel like if someone else had written it, I would be a, would be uh, less forgiving because I think I get some of his points. I disagree fundamentally because I think we should, you know, euthanize venture capitalists, as I was saying, but <laughs> but that's for that's for another day. <laughs> Man. Oh. Look, uh, VC lives matter. Or no, yeah, as, no. Oh no, I, no. As as our very first episode, TMK episode one was titled <laughs> "Tech Lives Matter." God, I just remembered. Oh yeah, that. remember the fucking Bloomberg piece with the woman who said, um, uh, who said that uh, tech li- woman who also was like implicated in a scandal that might have been fraudulent where hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake but never mind that um she said that uh, they're the ones who bring all the tax revenue they're the ones that support the public goods and services tech lives matter yes and then tried to get a correction from mother jones <laughs> here we are nearly 250 episodes later and tech lives matter. <laughs> we, we've made it full circle. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yes. Um, all right. Well, h- how much do they matter, though? Let's continue on with Brian's <laughs> That's a great question, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, uh, as Brian's, uh, you know, Brian lays out in the first few paragraphs all of that, like the you know, the the galling display of VCs just fucking whining and so on. And then I love it in a one sentence paragraph, you know, just an isolated sentence says, if only they realize just how good they have it, historically <laughs> speaking. <laughs> so, so yeah, so he goes on. It was mere decades ago, after all, that the Silicon Valley elite faced the active threat of actual non-metaphorical violence. The most adamant critics of big tech of the 1970s didn't write strongly worded columns chastising them in newspapers or blast their politics on social media. They physically occupied their computer labs, destroyed their capital equipment, and even bombed their homes. Uh, quote, tech lash is what Silicon Valley's ownership class calls it when people don't buy their stock, says Malcolm Harris. Quote, today's tech billionaires are lucky people are making fun of them on the internet instead of firebombing their houses. That's what happened to Bill Hewlett back in the day. One, so fucking good and based to be an author quoted in LA Times being like, there, there should be lucky people weren't firebombing their houses, <laughs> historically speaking. <laughs> yeah, historically. So, so just anecdotally. Historically, anecdotally. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is right. Like, this is what Malcolm's talked about uh, uh, briefly on our uh, sh- interview with him as well, that, you know, Brian goes on to say, quote, a 1987 article in the LA Times makes his point. When William Hewlett retired from the company he founded, Hewlett Packard, or HP as it's known today, the the LA Times dedicated a full paragraph to the various threats of violence that the billionaire faced in the 1970s. Quote, 
1971, radical animosities directed at the upscale Palo Alto community and Stanford University campus brought terror into the Hewlett's lives. The modest Hewlett family home was firebombed. In, seven, in 1976, son James, then 28, fought off would-be kidnappers. The same year, a radical group called the Red Gorilla Family claimed responsibility when a bomb exploded in an HP building. Really wild shit that like is, is uh, uh, extremely forgotten today, right? Like the VCs of today were either not around back then or they were so young that they were like, you know, Peter Till and David Sachs and these people, you know, at Stanford, but doing like woke college campus, like proto woke college campus, right wing shit, right? These people, these VCs, they've grown fat and complacent. Uh, you know, they've grown comfortable. Uh, they do not know this history. Um, uh, and they do, or they do not think that it will ever happen to them, right? Like they feel very secure knowing that the worst that can happen to them is people not respecting them on, on, on Twitter, right? Or like, or, or because, we live in a time now that, you know, as, uh, as Andrew Breitbart, right, the, the, the right-wing psycho nut job uh, said, you know, incorrectly but correctly at the same time that, like, all politics are downstream from culture, right? And we live in a time where people do very much act and behave uh, and believe that politics is just downstream from culture, right? And culture is what happens on social media. Uh, culture is what happens in uh, the news, right? Like, you know, and, and so like politics is really just an epiphenomenon of like how you are treated on social media or how you are covered on the news. And it's exactly why like, you know, Howard Schultz is uh, out there you know, literally saying that billionaire is a slur, right? That like, you know, uh, uh, you know, that these people are, you know, when I made that joke on Twitter that like these people are uh, a step away from, from seriously uh, using POC, people of capital, um, as, a, as like a, a, a way to describe themselves. Um, but then we, you reminded me, uh, and mm -hmm. others did, um, that the, our friends on the All In podcast uh, did talk legitimately about people of wealth, right? Describing <laughs> themselves as people of wealth. Right. All of that kind of like silly shit is uh, very much the direct result of them not knowing um, this history of like direct militant action against uh, against technology and against uh, the tech elite, um, either not knowing it uh, or and or um, believing with their whole heart that it will never come, it will never happen to them, um, that they will always be secure, um, that their that their own that their the worst injuries they will uh, suffer are the self-inflicted ones, right? Whether the self-inflicted injuries of collapsing their, you know, their venerable financial institution, or honestly, the continual everyday self-inflicted injury of um, logging on to Twitter when you have so much money that you should be never logging on, you know, like, like you don't have to. Uh, and that's a, but that is like, 
it, I think for them, it's a form of like wearing a hair shirt, right? It's a mm. form of like self-flagellation um, that they know, I think they know in their soul that they've, that they are not only worthless, but they are actively harmful to society. Um, and they have gained so much material wealth from being actively harmful that the way that they try to do, um, you know, everyday atonement is, uh, by logging on to Twitter and seeing the, um, the fire hose of, of, of hatred, uh, leveled against them when they don't have to. It's so easy to not do that. But they think that's the worst it can be. What if it's very hard, though? <laughs> well, no, but <laughs> they, they are addicted, so it is yeah. true. <laughs> I just aspire one day to be a person of means, um, you know, to own my own. Uh, no, I don't. I, I can't even pretend. I can't even <laughs> pretend for the bit. <laughs> you know, there's... Um, if I have means, I want them to be means of production or, or or computation. That's that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm interested in. That's what I want to steal from these folks. And that's what we got to target, right? You know, by the time you hear this, it'll probably be around the time that How to Blow Up a Pipeline is coming up in theaters in the United States. If you're an American listener, great movie. I uh, highly recommend you check it out. It's an important thing to think about as we're reading this interview about how for... for um, for fossil fuel companies, right? Something like this movie, uh, but also the book in of itself and other growing eco movements raise the investment costs and risk. And this is a tactic that mom talks about, about how one way to deter, you know, uh, capital deployment, if we are not interested in going through reformist routes, but we still want to have, an effect on things that some reform might otherwise achieve is to increase the cost of actually doing the thing. And there are lots of ways to do that. You can shame people, and sometimes it doesn't really work. That has a limit. You can do property damage. You do the threat of bodily violence and harm. Um, or you can actually you know, you know, do those things. And, and, and a key insight here is to look at how in the 70s, it was these threats of violence and then, you know, the, the nonviolent attacks, you know, the sabotage um, and the firebombing of um, capital equipment <clears throat> that also, you know, did get people uh, to redirect their energy elsewhere, right? And, you know, while now we're in a different situation where computation is not as concentrated in the ways that they were trying to do, or it's more protected, you know, you have some of these data centers that are now mobile tanks that move around in specific areas. You have far, you know, far removed from public space um, data centers. Uh, you have hardened sites. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit harder, you know, to try to do the how to destroy an empire. But all the, these people, the human beings, have addresses that can be harassed, occupied, Offices and workplaces that can be harassed, occupied, sabotaged, uh, vandalized, so on and so forth. And it's like that stuff. I think it's interesting that it has fallen away from the wayside in the popular history. As Malcolm talks about, you know, one reason why or one way it's been replaced is like this weird attempt to insist that the hippies developed into one way or another um, in a history that's both friendly to the right and to the new left. Um 
but it loses sight of the really radical projects that were going on here and the clear, crystallized focus that a lot of these groups had on computation, on computers, on technology, on tech, on technics, right? You know, what kind of civilization we have in large part depends upon this technology and not in some utopian or exceptionalist way, but just frankly because the technology ends up being used by uh, centers of power or, or power systems that are in- interested in subordinating people, sur- doing surveillance, securitizing people, organizing social resources and relations in specific ways that fit into specific political patterns or economic patterns. And the way to break a lot of that stuff, you know, get, that path gets a little bit shorter if we can have a handle on the technology, right? One way to have the handle on the technology is to close out certain paths is a defensive action. And one way to close out certain paths as a defensive action is to make these motherfuckers afraid. Yeah, that's right. We, we are the investment risk, right? As, uh, as the, the German group, you know, um, talks about that and, uh, mom quotes and, and, uh, uh, the, I want to read a, a, a bit from the middle of, of this column because it really struck me at how many direct comparisons uh there are between the kind of new left um militant actions that we're talking about in the 60s and 70s with the original luddite movement right a favorite of ours uh you know the inspiration for so much of uh of of what we talk about and how we talk about it and i i really myself did not know how many like so easy and direct uh, comparisons there are between the two um, groups. So, you know, um, Harris uh, says, quote, the new left tried to blow up more or less every computer they could get their hands on. And since both were likely to be found on college campuses, they got their hands on a bunch of them. Brian goes on to say, the reasoning was simple. The computers were making the war possible both by providing the physical hardware for missile targeting systems and such, and by processing data used to plan combat missions. The war caused untold suffering and death. Dismantle the war machine, hamper the war effort. So that's exactly what members of Stanford's leftist organizers affiliated with groups such as Students for a Democratic Society or SDS tried to do. First, they attempted peaceful tactics, such as a pressure campaign to halt the manufacture of napalm. It didn't work. So taking their cues from the Black Panther Party, which was at the time perhaps the most powerful and influential radical left group in the nation, Stanford students and even faculty adopted direct and militant tactics. They published maps of the high-profile tech companies and research offices in Palo Alto that had won defense contracts or were otherwise involved in the war effort. And after the U.S. military bombed Cambodia, the student left escalated its tactics by targeting the very data processing infrastructure that was aiding the war effort. And so, uh, you know, they did things like they occupied the Applied Electronics Laboratory at Stanford, uh, which was a um, major source of classified research in collaboration with the Pentagon um, and, and uh 
Uh, and, and, you know, that occupation ended with a major con uh, concession that classified military research no longer would be conducted on campus and that its resources would be used instead for community purposes. Um, and then that victory inspired copycat actions across the country and even more militant ones where they were um, bombing computers, destroying them with acid uh, at computer labs uh, from Boston University to Loyola to Fresno and everywhere in between. Um, you know, that these uh, saboteurs uh, and, and, you know, they were always focusing on the on the machinery, on the capital. Right. There was um, there is there was one instance of a uh, of a, uh, a death um, by a University of Wisconsin Madison um, postdoc, um, Robert Fasnock, um, who was uh, unbeknownst to the saboteurs, um, had been working late at night um, in the computer uh, lab. Right. And so but that was an accident. It was not the purpose. It was not, he was, you know, it was not the target. It was always the machinery, the labs, the capital equipment, right? I think that like there is so, in addition, you know, IBM offices were bombed and so on. Um, but like the uh, analogies here with the Luddite movement are so striking to me from the very beginning. One, this is not a anti-technology movement, right? This was an anti-war movement. This was an anti-imperialism movement. And the computer labs and the uh, machinery and the, you know, the equipment was a way, a direct and material way to target, uh, you know, these abstract forces of, uh, of, of capitalism and imperialism and the war effort. And similarly with the Luddites, right? Of course, as we know that, you know, smashing the machinery was not a anti-technology or anti-innovation, uh, knee-jerk reaction. It was, uh, directly a, uh, an action, uh, against the, uh, bosses and capital, right? And striking them where it hurts, uh, in the machinery, in the capital equipment, right? Um, and also starting with the fact that like both groups, the Luddites, um, and SDS, uh, tried peaceful tactics first, right? It was their first recourse was not like, all right, guess we got to bring out the hammers and the bombs and the acid, uh, and, 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 and uh, destroy some equipment. Like they tried peaceful, tactics around protesting, around negotiation, around, you know, public pressure, um, all of these things. And it's only when uh, they're ignored uh, that you then, that they are then escalated, right? Then that's exactly what the Luddites tried to do. Um, uh, it's exactly what SDS tried to do, right? So more, more direct analogies and comparisons, right? Uh, additionally, they both, uh, both groups did not just wantonly destroy anything that they could get their hands on, right? It was all extremely planned and deliberate and targeted, right? So just as the Luddites, as, uh, as we know, would smash some with, you know, in a, in a factory, and at this time factories were spaces um, occupied by multiple um, capitalists, uh, you know, uh, owners and, and bosses. Um, and so there could be a, there'd be a machine, you know, side by side machines could be owned by different, uh, people, um, different, uh, uh, bosses, you know, used in different ways and so on. And so, you know, the Luddites would target the machinery of, uh, the bosses and the owners that were notorious for mistreating workers for, uh, 
exploitation for unsafe work conditions, all of the, you know, all of that, uh, um, you know, low quality goods, etc. And right beside them would be a machine of the same kind that they would leave untouched because that boss, that owner was, uh, was known to treat their workers well and produce quality goods and so on, right? And similarly, we have here in Brian's column, you know, talking about how, you know, they would, uh, you know, SDS would create maps of the um, tech companies and research offices that had defense contracts, right? So they weren't just going around, um, you know, uh, blindly and ignorantly, uh, you know, destroying whatever computers they could get their hands on. It's like, no, Oh, oh, this computer is being used for the war effort. All right, smash it. Oh, this computer is uh, not part, not being used as part of the war effort. All right, it's fine. Whatever, you know. So again, very targeted, right? Uh, uh, showing again that the technology, as is always the case, is a representation of other social processes, other human values, other pl uh, political dynamics, right? That the technology itself, that we cannot, you know, um, reify uh, or fetishize the technology on, you know, understanding it as if it's a thing that exists in and of itself, but rather is a thing that exists as part of a much broader web of relations. Um, and they, and, and both groups did that, right? And like, the uh, the analogies just go on and on, right? From you know a diversity of tactics, you know occupation, uh, destruction, uh, you know uh, public pressure campaigns, like all of this kind of stuff. Like you know, as I was reading this, it was just really striking to me to see how, and I think this is like unknowingly um, by the new left. I don't think the I don't think these student uh, uh, leftist groups. Uh, and militant, uh, you know, student militants and leftist militants in the 60s were like scholars of the Luddites. And we're like, hmm, let's see what the original history of the Luddites and, and copy their tactics and do that. It's like, no, this is this is instead, you know, the all of these direct comparisons are and there are, are, are it's not as if you know the SDS was copycatting the Luddites, but nor is this just a coincidence, right? This is instead the reaction uh, and the response of a you know of militant leftist groups that based their material actions on a material analysis. You know, they had a they had an analysis, a materialist analysis of the technology and of the technology's place and role in these broader abstract networks of capital uh, and of imperialism. Um, and, and so, you know, it's no coincidence and nor should it be a surprise that the Luddites, you know, that the, the, the tactics of the Luddites um, mirror in really striking ways the tactics of uh, these of the uh, SDS militants, you know, despite there being a 150 year difference between the two, and despite there being a, in all likelihood no knowledge, um, you know, definitely no knowledge with the Lud uh, the Luddites of SDS, but probably no knowledge of SDS with the Luddites either. But it should not be a surprise. Nor is it a coincidence that their tactics mirror each other because they are based out of the same essential materialist analysis leading to material action, right? And, and this is not an anomaly either. Like, this is the beautiful thing of Gavin Mueller's book, 
um, breaking things at work, which traces as well this history of uh, of kind of Luddite worker movements, um, you know, from the original Luddites up to the contemporary era. So this, you know, 200-year history of these kind of Luddite Marxist worker movements um, that without being, you know, without knowing it, without being aware, you know, whether they're aware of each other or not, um, whether they are drawing direct inspiration from, say, the the Wobblies and the, you know, during the Gilded Age, uh, the Luddites during the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, the uh, SDS during the, uh, the 60s and 70s, right? Whether these groups are drawing direct inspiration or not, they are all part of the same lineage of Luddite, uh, you know, Luddite leftist militant movements um, that are basing material action on materialist analysis and understanding that sabotage um, must always be an option on the table, uh, especially when um, all other options are routinely uh, ignored and squashed uh, by, by capital uh, and by the state, right? So I don't know, like th this is... This is just what really came to my mind in, in reading this column um, is just like really without even trying uh, making these like direct uh, uh, comparisons between between these groups. And I think then, you know, one thing to think about is like, you know, do we think part of the deficit today is does it purely come down to. I mean, because you know, in the in the column, they talk about how it's been written out of the history. They talk about the they talk about overlap and militancy and outrage. They talk about the 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 ways in which it's thought about today. Uh, they talk about the real backlash that's going on and a lot of the kindling. But there seems to be this gap. Or this deficit, right? So, do, you know, I'm always curious, like, how much of it do you feel is an inten uh, intentional and in that, like, the deficit has been cultivated by these people by trying to cordon off the way in which we engage in this debate, keeping it to critical columns, keeping it to social media, keeping it to these outlets that feel cathartic, but effusive, or if it's not even that intentional and it just comes and it's linked more largely to, like, Increased securitization of uh, security of everything, greater surveillance, greater tools of violence, and implement and and, and, and tools to implement violence with for the state and for private actors, um, and and just like a dissolution or disintegration of the 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 foam and the and the political environment and milieu of the left to sustain militancy and to transform it into something that might be insurrectionary. I mean, like, you know, Harris says at the end, these people are worried. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, are they worried in the, in, in the way where they're like constantly trying to, are they intentionally successfully diffusing that energy? Or do you feel like they're worried about it because they, they're, they're aware of the history and maybe they're not sure why or when it'll jump to that historical norm of backlash. I think it's also to, to go through that, we should like to also kind of wrap it back around to the top of the show as well Is like, what are they worried about? Right. Like, you know, uh, you're right. Like, like the, you know, the, the Brian's piece ends with Malcolm saying, you know, quote, I think they are very, very worried. Uh, and then, you know, Brian going on to say, if history is any precedent, perhaps they should be, but very, 
but directly preceding that is what are they worried about? It's talking about how like, you know, these people are building like survival bunkers in Montana and New Zealand. Right. And like, in other words, and, and, you know, wrap it back to the, the top of the show. Like they're worried about these like existential, you know, risk of like AI doom on like a, you know, civilization ending level or whatever. Right. Or at least that's what they say explicit. Like that's what they say in public um, that they're worried about. And that's, but they put their money where their mouth is in terms of like what they fund and, and, and what they spend their money on in terms of like hedging against that, that worry uh, and that risk. Um, to me, what I think it shows is that like there's this huge gap where like uh, the venture capitalists or just capitalists in general, the billionaires and the billionaires and millionaires, you know, they are um, worried in much the same exact way that like, you know, the, that like leftist uh, groups um, often feel kind of disempowered. It's the same exact thing, which is that old canard of like, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? And so like, you know, I think I think both uh, uh, left-wing and right-wing groups are, are um, plagued by that like capitalist realism meets innovation realism kind of mindset. And so like what they are worried about today is not like a... Uh, like an imminent threat of like militant action against them in the form of like, you know, firebombing computers or whatever. What they are worried about is, you know, a very like more Frankensteinian worry of like their own creation is going to rise up against them, right? Like they are worried about their, they are worried about themselves being too powerful, you know, which I think is like a very flattering way to be worried is to say that like the system that I am a paragon of capitalism um, is eternal. I'm not, I, I, you know, if, if, if it were to change, it would only change by being um, by some apocalyptic world ending change. Similarly, my power within that system is great uh, and, and unchallengeable. Right. And so if, uh, there were to be some apocalypse that I need to hedge against, that I need to be afraid of, it would be the result of my power being too great within a system that itself is too great. Uh, you know, and, and so it's like a very, um, a very self-flattering form of, of, of worry um, to build bunkers and to, uh, you know, uh, bang on about existential risk from AI. Um, when in reality, you know, the kind of worry we're talking about in Brian's column of more like much more imminent, like from the ground uh, level uh, of threat of like, you know, militant action against them, you know. Uh, I mean, I th like on one hand, they're not worried about it because it seems so far, far uh, far-fetched in, in today's society and i think there's something to be said about that just general sense of disempowerment but like that doesn't come from nowhere right like that is also a product of the like erasure of these histories or the product of like you know like it is weird that people still know the term luddite even though it like refers to a you know uh, a like a worker movement 
um, from over 200 years ago that only lasted for like four or five years, right? Like it is weird, but like, why do we remember that? Well, it's because as like, you know, some uh, historians um, have, I have, I think, you know, quite convincingly argued um, is that, you know, uh, thinking in particular of, uh, of Adrian Randall, who's a, a great historian of Luddism, um, has talked about how like, the way L the Luddite is remembered now and this like really kind of like, you know, in the way that we know the term as a kind of like derogatory like way of talking about like anti-technology or primitivism or anti-innovation or anti-progress. Like the reason why that term has survived in the way that it has is because it's like a really, you know, the Luddites have been turned into a, a lesson for of losers, right? That like, hey, these people lost and you know what? If you try to do what they do too, you're going to lose and you're going to have the same fate as they are, right? You will be remembered, but you will be remembered as in the most like unflattering, the most insulting, um, the most like you are a loser um, kind of way of, of being remembered, right? And so like, that's why we have this like persistent false history of the Luddites is because it's like an ideological weapon for, um, for capital that because we live in an age of technological capital, right? Where the technology sector, um, is so powerful and so central to society. Um, it has also corresponded with a rise of the use of the term Luddite, right? To like, um, paint those people who, uh, you know, are critics of that or challenge it, right? And like, it's the same way that I think the new left, um, as Her as Malcolm talks about, is remembered as these like, you know, uh, ridiculous hippies who tried to levitate the Pentagon or like who try who like took too much acid and mushrooms and, you know, and like they remember, like they're like the new left is a joke, uh, right? Like the hippies are a joke. Right. And they're remembered uh, as jokes. It's very similar to the way that the Luddites are remembered as losers. <laughs> and, and, and so like, you know, even though like there is this like far more militant history of the new left, um, that goes unremembered. And I, and it's like, again, another parallel, um, between the Luddites and the, and, and the, and the, the new left groups like SDS, even the Black Panther Party, which had a lot to say about democratic control of technology and technology for the people. Right. Um, but like they're remembered as like losers, uh, or, or psychos, right? Like, uh, losers or crazy people. Um, because like if they were remembered as anything else, then they would actually be real threats. Um, and the, and it would not be the case that the only threat that these people are willing to talk about or willing to acknowledge are threats that are, um, there was, are, are, are threats that are low probability, far flung, um, and the result of their own power. Again, another parallel here, and and I think it's why it's why I think that the the kind of like knowing these histories are important. Not only because it's like like oh like it it is fun to look back at like you know at the real victories of 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 the people who we you know are ideologically um, comrades with, um, but also because those like real vic like like they should be inspirations to be like, Oh, like that's possible. It is possible to, 
to to do that and and it, it can't be a winner take all situation either because like it's it, like you can't be like well it like they lost um because the luddites did not actually stop the industrial revolution or like or like they lost because sds did not stop the computer revolution it's like no like that's a really fall like like that's Oh, uh, it's a bad way to look at it as this winner-take-all situation, and it's also the way that our enemies want us to look at it. You saw really good. Yeah, no, those are really great points, Ryan. We can't fall for the trap that they want so frequently, which we, like we talked about in the previous column, can't fall for that trap with AI marketing. Right? It's too tempting. We have to keep our eyes on the prize. We have our own criticisms, concerns, fears, objectives. And that we arrive at for distinctive reason, for reasons that are distinct from what these fuckers want, uh, what these hustlers and what these grifters want, especially on a path to try to, you know, create a world that, um, you know, technology and decisions about what kind of society we're going to have are subordinated to increasingly narrower sectors of society and higher and higher rungs. Um, so yeah, you know, I think that, um, like you said, you know, they're scared of the power in the sense that I think they there's that recognition. There's the recognition that it's not it's unsustainable, or it's unsustainable and in, in its core natural form, and in, in essence, and it has to be maintained with an inordinate amount of power, capital, and state capture, and threat of violence. Um, indoctrination and propaganda um, in in all sorts of, you know, conspiracies against futures that people would much rather pursue or adopt or develop. The way to push out that, pushing out that already is doing some of the work. And and they fear what I feel, I hope, is inevitable, a radical break from that, that will spark a wildfire. All right. Well, I think that's a good place as any to 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 leave it, um, wrap up this episode. So we did it. We made it through the column, even it. though we did a big detour through a different column. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the same author, I'm sure he would love <laughs> that's that. Right. We got Brian, this double header. This is the Brian Merchant fan club. In case you didn't realize, listener. <laughs> Listen, to episode Sorry, Brian one. Merchant fan cam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just his essays. <laughs> oh man! Uh, all right. Well, I'm I'm gonna leave it there. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. You can find us as always at Patreon.com/slash/ThisMachineKills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, so find us over on the premium feed. Uh, and until next time, later. Adios.
Pierre, 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 Pierre,